Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey listeners, and welcome to this edition of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me ready to talk about one of 2021's gems is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Aaron, you have to say hi. You can't sign Oh, I, I was trying to sign my hello because <laughs> we're talking about a film about the deaf community. So you know was... what? The, the, the logic is there, but being on a podcast, it kind of loses its luster. With I guess so. I can see you. So I thought maybe I, I guess I got confused. But hello. Good evening. There we go. Well, interestingly enough, this will be the second week. We discuss a film surrounding characters that are part of the deaf community. But just like last week, there's a lot to hear <clears throat> in terms of how the movie made us both feel. Da-dum, da-dum. Before we get into the spoilerific portion of our show, we wanted to give a huge thanks to everyone over the last several years that have contributed to getting our review numbers over that magical 200 in order for us to qualify for critical space on Rotten Tomatoes. We've sent out lots of tweets. We've begged you on Facebook. and Finally, we are now just over 200 in Apple iTunes, Apple Music, whatever it's being called these days. And for that, we are incredibly grateful. And we're so glad that we have a community of people that love us enough to do that, even though it can be kind of a hassle. But that, along with listening, I think just makes you guys a fantastic community of feelers. So thank you again. And and we're incredibly grateful, like we said. Well, that being said, this is the spoilerific part of our show as we always like to give you a warning. So just know that we're going to really spoil the heck out of this. There's a lot to talk about, and I know you and I are really excited to get into the discussion. So let's get right into it. All right, first up, Aaron, you saw this before I did, and uh, wanted to kind of get you. What's that? Sorry. I said shocker. Shocker. <laughs> yeah, rarely is it that I get to see a movie before Aaron does. And, and a new movie, yeah. A, a new, new movie, yeah. There, there's yeah. probably plenty of... <laughs> You know, Kickboxer 4 showed up on our voodoo. I can tell you what, you're the first one of the two of us who have seen Kickboxer 4, Patrick. I'm probably the first one of the two of us that have seen it more than once. I mean, that's the thing. I was, oh, my goodness gracious. I know this was this was I'm, I've been in a martial arts kick. And so I'm like, let's just let's just plow through everything while we got it. <laughs> and it's just as bad as I remember it. So it probably won't get revisited. <laughs> well, what did you think? of of coda give me some of the highlights and why it was really such a joy to watch for you well i'll try to stay away from big ongoing conversation pieces as much as i can but i can tell you several kind of smaller fun little nuggets uh that contributed to why this landed the way it did first of all both of us are coming of age stands essentially like this is a genre that has always and forever connected with you and I in a way that directors and storytellers intend for it to connect with their audiences. And so this is the kind of movie that it it does generate feelings. It gets into your emotions. It puts you in a character's perspective and lets you walk through something that I think generally will be in some shape or form relatable and that's one thing that we love about the genre i feel that this one in particular does that extremely well we can talk about 
a scene at the end that I think really amplifies that point. It, it kind of frustrated me, honestly, to see some of the criticisms I've seen of this movie uh, already. And, and it doesn't have a lot of criticisms. Don't get me wrong. This is Sundance 2021's both Grand Jury and Audience Award winner, which is pretty incredible that it won both those awards. So it was a critical hit and a hit with just general moviegoers, both. But the people that have posted on, like, say, Letterboxd and made frustrating comments about this one, in my opinion, it's all been about, like, oh, it's nothing you haven't seen before. I contest. It's not about whether or not you've seen it before. I mean, we, we've contest. We say this all the time. It's about the execution. It's about the nuance. And I think that this movie has those things in spades. It is a remake. I, I thought I could point that out right now early on. Did you know that? Didn't know that. Okay. I was a... I was pretty sure you didn't, and I, and I actually wouldn't be surprised if many of our listeners who got a chance to see this on Apple TV, which is where it's streaming, by the way, folks, it's on Apple TV Plus, and <laughs> here we go. Apple TV Plus is the service that it is streaming on, so if you have that, you can watch it. If you don't have it, five bucks, one month, plow through incredible amount of TV show and movie content. They are absolutely stacked. It's Patrick and I's favorite streamer at the moment. Anywho. So like I was saying, this is based on a, a remake of a 2014 César uh, award-winning French film. So that's like the French Oscars. It was called La Famille Belliere. And essentially, instead of the family being into fishing, the family was into farming. And everything else is practically the same. The Ruby character gets into music. That's what she wants to do as well. I didn't watch it, but I did read a plot synopsis and to try and find out like what was different, but the dynamics of the family and the relationships are very, very similar. And I actually kind of surprised me, honestly, Patrick, whenever I found this out after the fact, because a lot of times we put our nose up and we're like, well, gosh, stop remaking great foreign films. Well, this is literally an award-winning foreign film that we remade and it worked for whatever reason. And maybe we can talk about why I don't know, but you know, some of the things that really landed with me, I love gray area stories, and it is a weird way to to find that, or it's kind of unexpected in a coming-of-age tale, I think. Usually that's in, like, our sci-fi, or, you know, sometimes, like, our thrillers uh, with cops and stuff who kind of operate on that line between ethical right and wrong and morally right and wrong. But what we had here is like a movie that gives you no easy answers because in the end, it just invited me to consider what I think the right choice for Ruby and her family might have been. And the answer is it's personal. And the story that they're telling was the, the chosen direction that this family decided to go. And it's not right and it's not wrong. And by the end of this movie, I think they portray so well, Patrick, where you can legitimately understand if Ruby had made the opposite choice and stayed to be there. It would have made complete sense and perfect. You could not have judged her for or the family for that, is my point. Just like you can't judge any of them for what it ultimately happens here. I just love that. We can get into that more if you want. Um, references. Because it's a movie about singing, I expected them. And I love that we got just, they're very subtle there's a moment early on when she is signing up for choir and Gertie says, 
something about Pitch Perfect. Essentially, she says, if you start beatboxing or doing that clapping cups thing, which I was like, yes, we've got a Pitch Perfect reference. And then when they meet Mr. V, he says, let's see if you're an alto, a soprano, or you just watch too many episodes of Glee. So I thought, you know, that really brings us into the modern context for me because, how, you know what, this is the reality of a coming-of-age tale told, told right now is that kids that sign up for choir in high school are the right age that they might have come up watching Glee with their mom and dad when they were a teen, an early teenager, right? That could very well have been the trigger that gets people into this. And I got, I got so many more. I'm going to slow down. One more that I love that I think, two more, two more, two more things. And then I'm going to shut up. But Take as many as you want, man. Take as many as you I, want. I just so. really love this movie. So it is wholesome in a way that I am so not used to seeing. And the, re the way that I'll point out is Ruby in particular. She wears jeans and a sweatshirt for like 95% of this movie. There's a couple of scenes where they go swimming. She is not in a bikini. First of all, it wouldn't make any sense because of where they are in Massachusetts, but, and they specifically talk about the water being cold, but that doesn't stop most filming. But not only that, Patrick, but she's wearing like a tank top swimming suit thing, and she actually has something underneath. So this is going to sound crazy, but like how many movies take that as an opportunity to show a woman who technically has a top on, but there's no bra. So you may see something showing through in an outline, right? And in their chest, or you want to put them in a, a, a small cut bottoms because they're, they're trying to draw attention to the attractiveness of characters. And that doesn't happen. And I just, I don't remember a lot of movies that take such care. It seems like in being normal <laughs> and not, overly sexified so that it's so wholesome in that way and that ties into that the last one i'll mention right now is just i adore the depiction of the parents in this movie the whole family unit as a whole we can go into the family unit i'm sure and i have more details but a healthy loving sexually engaged romantic long married couple who love each other who desire each other who don't make apologies for it and it, their dude i don't know their relationship is just so completely beautiful to me the way that they don't have all this interpersonal drama up between themselves they have drama that they're dealing with as a whole for the most part but there's not like this dark secret hiding in the closet that we've got to we know we our characters have to deal with because everybody's got problems, you know, like we know they no no perfect family out there. But what you see is two people who truly have created this whole family unit of Leo and Ruby, their kids that they brought up. It's it's beautiful. It, it is absolutely beautiful and amazing and just so cool to see a family unit that isn't treated as a mistake or a problem that needed to be fixed. And, and I thought it was a great depiction of that. And so I really latched on to that point as well. But I'm going to shut up. So I, I want you to... <laughs> I, <laughs> first, I don't want to just hog all the airtime here. But ser so what, what is? did any of those, did all of those stand out to you? I don't know. I knew you were going to love this movie. I mean, like, I had yeah. no quite. Yeah. And I'll just say this up front, since you reminded me of it earlier. This is a trophy room movie for us. 
Yay! I'm, I'm guessing it's a trophy it. room since you asked me. It is in the context it's, of the movie. Yeah, it's my number one or two of the year right now. It's kind of kind of back and forth with the Green Knight. So yeah, it's yeah. a five star for me for sure. Coda is one of these movies, Aaron, that I think it's coming of age, and yes, we definitely kind of gravitate towards those. Obviously, it's a movie that takes place in high school, which I'm going to obviously love by default. But I like the messiness of the family. I, I like the simplicity of the story. We don't have a huge bombastic conflict that happens. It's very simple that the fishing career is in trouble. The fishing business is in trouble. And Ruby has to make a choice. And so by the middle of the film, we're going, man, do we need her to stay? Do we need her to go? And what really drew me to the movie into the story is the fact that there are times when I agreed with her parents. There are times when I agreed with her. There are times when I agreed with her brother. And it really is three different perspectives. They're not in conflict with each other necessarily, but they're different and they're coming from different places. And so when you can take a lot of character development, like we see with these four and you put them in a two hour time frame and you flesh out the things that we get to see, it's pretty incredible because sometimes you don't need a complex story to keep a person entertained. Sometimes the simplest stories that elevate characters and elevate people and just all these different things, not in place of the story, but sort of alongside it where the story itself sort of becomes the, the crux or the thing that pushes them forward. I think that's what makes a really good story for me. It's very quiet. It's very down to earth, very approachable. And it really does allow what we know in the title, children of deaf adults, not to be the thing that drives, but the thing that is dealt with in part, because this is not a story about how a deaf family gets over their deafness. It could be, but it's not. In fact, when we look at the story, this is one of the few stories, Aaron, where the main character isn't. <laughs> if we're talking about the deaf community, more often than not, we're going to get the main character, the protagonist, being the one who's deaf in a world of hearing people. And we get the opposite of that, which is something that I don't see a lot. And we got a little bit of that with the silent voice. The main character was not the one who was deaf. He interacts with her. She's the same way. And there's just the way we get into it is so hilarious, so sweet, so just blunt that there are a couple of moments like right when we get started with the film, she's on the boat. She's the and if we didn't know anything about the movie, we get we already get to what her role is. And so she's signing. She's singing. And we're like, why aren't they singing along? Oh, wait, they can't hear. And then later on, uh, a few scenes later, they're having dinner. Her dad farts. She hears that was it. on my list. Yeah. And she says, sound. oh, my gosh. She signs it to him. And he basically said, I can't remember the line exactly. But he essentially said, do you know why God created farts? So so deaf people can enjoy them, too, because yeah. the way they smell. And I'm like, this is hysterical. This is a typical family, not a typical hearing, non-hearing. This is a typical family who have embraced the differences in how they live. Either with hearing or without. But it's not so obvious to the audience to say, this is what we're going to center around. No. If you told me the plot of the story was a girl 
has to choose between staying with her family who have a struggling business or going to pursue her dream as a singer, and it's a coming-of-age story, I probably would have latched on to that. The death aspect of it, I think, adds such a great angle because now we're getting a different perspective from her to them and how she tries to communicate, not only verbally, but non-verbally, socially, emotionally, but also how they're trying to cope with the things that she's trying to do. In fact, her mom, oh gosh, I love Martley Matlin. I just, I love, love, love her. Uh, she was, I fell in love with her in the West Wing. She played Joey Lucas. She's fantastic <laughs> yep. in it. And she's actually, she signs quite a bit, but she also talks uh, because she's not fully deaf. And so not hearing her talk in this was kind of weird, but it obviously added to her her character because this is a family that relies specifically on sign, not necessarily trying to emote a, a sound or try to reflect you know a verbal language. Uh-huh. But watching how they respond to her and her dream and what they're trying to do, it's heartbreaking at times because it's like, what? How can you not support her? And then you kind of get into the story and you realize, yeah, if I were that were my daughter, regardless of my disability, it would be hard for me to say goodbye to her. I mean, this is my daughter. This is my 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 baby. And it's relatable. It is. It really is. Regardless of the 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 reason that's the thing like you're saying it's relatable regardless of the disability being the thing that is causing them to want her to stay you could substitute anything that parents don't want their kids to leave or you could substitute anything for uh, not understanding a thing that their kids love i thought about how you know getting into sports for an example neither of us ever grew up playing soccer both of our kids played soccer as a kid so then you and I both ended up in this world where now we became soccer fans and we had to learn the game and you're refereeing and I'm at tournaments all the time if my daughter who is in going into video game design if I was not a gamer how many parents actually have to deal with this right who they don't play video games but their kids are into it their kid they're not going to be able to understand that passion Right. So it doesn't have to be deafness involved. It's still relatable. And that, that's the beauty of, of it, I thought. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is something really interesting. There's a deafness to not being able to understand your children. I think there's metaphorically something happening here where even if they weren't deaf, the misunderstanding that they have of her love for music and love for singing is spot on in here. And yes, you could make the argument that it's because they don't they don't hear it. They don't know what music sounds like. We're assuming that both parents and the child uh, and the brother, uh, Ruby, uh, Frank, Leo, and Jackie, we're assuming that they were deaf from birth. That they didn't, they were never hearing people. And so I take that premise, and I I think as parents, as brother, as brother, yes, they're not going to understand that. And here's the ironic thing, Aaron. There's this beautiful moment. Where Ruby is talking to Bernardo, I can't roll my R's, I wish I could, but the music teacher, and he's trying to get her to articulate, what is it like when you sing? And she tries to explain verbally, and what does she default to? To really get at it. Sign language. Because that's the language that she knows, that she is intimate with. It's because that's how she communicates with the people that are incredibly close to her, that she loves deeply. And it's small moments like that that I think reveal 
things about Ruby and make us believe that she really does care about her family. Because you could take this story and be like, look, let's just make Ruby this rebel. Like, look, I don't care if you're not, you know, if you're deaf. I need to believe this is my dream. I'm going to pursue it. And you could have made that the plot. She could have been the prodigal son at some point, or she could have gone on to make her own fame or do whatever. But from the very beginning, we know how deeply she cares about her family, how deeply she loves them. And so when you get to that point where she's about ready to go to that rehearsal with him, uh, with her music teacher, after he's told her like one scene before, I'm giving you one more chance. But because you're not showing up on time, it tells me you don't care. And she ends up getting stopped by her mom in order to talk to these reporters about this new venture that her family is. To me, that is a significant conflict that I felt for her because she sold me as a character on her deep love for her family, not out of being feeling sorry for them, not out of pity. And I think that one of the things that I love about this movie is that when it comes to having a family that is different from you, that has something in common that you don't with them, the deaf disability is not vaulted as a disability. It's just something different that you can't connect to. And again, I think that speaks to what you were saying, that what if you have two parents and one parent connects to a child more than the other? How bad and how terrible does that other parent feel like, I don't know how to talk to my child. You do. I don't. I mean, I've seen families that have done that where you have a a husband of a husband and wife that connect with his children, quote, better than his wife does because he can sit down on the floor and play video games or talk this childlike language. And I think we we get that in Coda, that she feels like an outcast, not because she can't communicate with her family, but because this is the one thing that they share. And of course, that's brought to light later in the film. But I think it allows us to really dive into what it means to be an awkward teenager in relationship to your family who are all one way and you're another. And it's not just about you having a different dream that they do, but it's about the fact that you have such a difficult time on multiple levels, intellectual, verbal, nonverbal, emotional communicating that dream to them and the way the the movie resolves all that i think is pretty amazing not just giving us a happy ending but really helping us trust and believe in that resolution i for one like movies that don't leave us with a bow necessarily not a big fan of the hallmark endings this didn't this may be considered a hallmark ending in that everybody kind of got what they want but getting there, I think, was really messy, and there was struggle, and there were hard conversations that needed to be had, but not to the extent where we're like, oh my gosh, this is Manchester by the Sea. I can't ever be happy. No, most of the time, I'm watching this movie, and I'm smiling, even in the moments when I feel like there's real conflict. You're going to say so, something? Yeah, I was just going to say, you could compare this, I think, in a lot of ways, and not the arc exactly, but the ending to Ladybird, because... What you have here is a character who goes off to pursue her dream. There's no resolution to what happens, Patrick. She very well could bail out and end up back home or miss her family or whatever. Like, we don't know what her dream is going to entail. It's 
simply about them going through this exploratory process and having to make a single decision. Yes, it could be life changing or it is life changing, but we don't know. And we don't know how it's going to work out with them having a new deckhand on the ship. You know what I mean? And I are on the boat. And I think, I think that's awesome. Like you said, and, and I also don't mind the quote happy ending of it. Like I don't need everything to be quite, in fact, this genre in particular, that's one of the strengths of the genre is kind of knowing you're, you don't come of age if it doesn't ever actually go, you don't learn anything and something happens that you have to go through this change to get to a new point and be different. Like that's what the genre is. So (laughs) I think that it would be weird for nothing to work out and to not actually have that happen. And so, yeah, yeah, it's, it's beautifully told and Mm -hmm. the relationships between her and them, I think are critical. I mean, the ending sequence, which around the audition ultimately is her having these one-on-one different moments with each family member was incredible to me because those conversations all were different. They all touched on something very important in her relationship and she needed not a singular family unit's approval, but she needed to have these moments where each individual person in that family gets to kind of connect with her in a different way. Right. Uh, And it just, she gets to go off and it, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't, I don't think she would have the cozy, warm, good feeling about potentially leaving if she didn't have those moments with them. Right. Right. I mean, in music, I think subtext of the word coda child of deaf adults is also a nod to, to music and that ending of resolving (laughs) a song, getting to a place where there is a conclusion. And I'm really glad that you brought up those three conversations. I'm glad that she didn't have this one long monologue in the living room with all three of them telling them, here's what I need. Here's what's important to me. And I want you to appreciate this. And I want you to understand what she needed were those individual conversations. Because each person, her dad, her mom, and her brother all needed something different from her. They needed you know, to take the music analogy a little bit for they needed their own verse in order to get to that kind of chorus of we understand what it is that you need. And the fact is, Aaron, that ending scene, that audition was, I think, her way of saying all three of you, this is how I can communicate it to you fully. And it's such a great contrast to her performance earlier. And I think this is pretty fantastic on the director's part to be able to say, What would it be like if I were deaf in an audience watching my daughter sing and watching her emote these things and not being able to hear a note? And what we see is early on in the performances, her dad is messing with his shirt (laughs) because, you know, he's I mean, he has nothing to distract him. He's just sitting in silence. And later he's signing to his wife, what's for dinner? I think I want spaghetti. And in a, in, a, in a normal movie, in a movie that you have hearing people, that would seem so rude. Like, this is your daughter. But I didn't feel that for them. I felt like, well, yeah. I mean, what? <laughs> who are they distracting? You know, <laughs> what's the deal? And then 
of course it it leans in at the very end of that performance where for a moment we get to hear or experience what they experience which is just silence and we get to see them looking at people reacting and responding to her performance seeing them cry seeing them smile seeing them tap their feet and clap their hands or you know tap their finger but at the end of that we don't get some kind of ah now they get it no they're just like okay this is different and i think you needed that scene to set up those three conversations because she was grateful that they were there aaron she was grateful that they were part of that and i think in that moment she realized that they needed more to understand her not so they could she could be validated but so that she could connect with them in a way that made a lot of sense and i think that's where the audition really elevates the movie not only because it's just emotionally amazing but because when she starts signing it's her way of connecting saying look i can speak your language and you can speak mine in these these two minutes we can do this and it's wonderful yeah i think the the hard part about the choir performance that's brilliant use of sound by the way i think just that moment specifically cutting away like that after and doing it at the end of it and not the beginning and doing it the whole way but letting us just go through that scene normally and really feel natural to us to then pull it away and all of a sudden be like oh my gosh this is what it's like the thing that stuck out to me about that moment was they legitimately don't know if she's good they'll never know they'll technically never be able to to understand and comprehend if she's good or not the only way they will know is if she has some sort of success that comes from it or basically the reaction of other people is what tells them if someone else thinks she's good but then that's all it is it's still only someone else recognizes this thing that you are they literally can never actually know it for themselves which is awful like in a sense like it's very hard to to think about when you understood that it just it put that complication that difficulty of that type of relationship in such a new light for me and it really gave me an even stronger empathy for the mom and dad like you're going to this thing knowing how it you you're just watching her up on it you know it's nothing to you and that would be very difficult but that also of course shows why it's so meaningful to her and it it's just it's such a great moment but that sound design choice and the other place they use that same sound design choice was the coast guard and i love the coast guard moment because of that where it really shows the confusion and the lack of clarity for what is happening in that moment where all of a sudden the the ship is coming up and you they can't hear what's going on like they don't know what's happening in that time and it's it was it cracked me up because you we get we get to hear like the coast guard talking to them and then it's like what <laughs> she called you and the person who called you told you that they're deaf so what do you think they're gonna do hear you all of a sudden you know like you know you're gonna have to are they faking it is this is the is yeah. this joke are you being pumped but it, <laughs> but it showed like it was kind of heartbreaking like realizing not because they couldn't hear but because 
because of their disability and the way that the world operates on this different plane of understanding, that is what causes this tremendous amount of frustration and fear and all these different anxieties in them because they can't communicate. And it's not because their ability to communicate is wrong or bad or whatever. It's just because that's not the way that we, as people who do hear, we take it for granted and we make assumptions. Yeah. And so it's harder on them because of that. Well, it's misplaced is what it is. And we find out that scene later when they get arrested, not arrested, but they get their license taken away and all those penalties happen. And Ruby says, listen, you cannot do that. You have to have a hearing deckhand. And that's when they, of course, call her out and say, well, that's what your job was supposed to be. And there was a part of me, Aaron, that I'm going back in that scene where, you know, Frank and Leo are getting ready to go out and that, I don't know who it is, F, not FBI, but that, that, that observer comes on. And I almost wonder if they, <laughs> of course, this wouldn't have made the story progress any further, but I almost wish they would have just written down we are deaf, we need a hearing deckhand before we can go out. And she's like, okay, yeah, just wait until you do that. But I think it also, go ahead. I was just gonna say they can't. Like it, They are trying to get by when they know. They knew the regulation. My understanding was that they understood very clearly like they couldn't get away with this. And so they were just going to try and just deal with it and basically force their way through the, the situation and mm -hmm. hope that, it was able to show that they were able, they were capable without needing it. Right. And I think they were, they were really trying to force, you know, in, they were forced into this in a sense by Ruby because th their pride, their pride was hurt and they right. wanted to prove that they didn't need her at that moment. Right. Um, or, or I guess in reality, they kind of wanted to also maybe subconsciously prove that they did. <laughs> well, I think it's both. I think there's a, there's a sense of they, at that point, their pride elevated their value above what she was doing. And if they had, my point was getting, the point I was getting to is that had they just stopped at that point and said, we can't do this, it would have been an obvious admission of them being limited. And we know that Leo, early on, he's like, I got this. I got this. And Frank is sort of in the middle. It's almost like you have these three levels of acceptance about your disability when it comes to being deaf. You have Jackie, who's like, I can't talk to these people at all. And then you have Frank, who sits in the middle, who's like, I want to, but I don't know that they'll understand me. And then you've got Leo, who's like, look, we can do this. We don't have to be defined by this. But I think there's a sense of pride, like you mentioned, with all three of them that comes out in different ways and it's ironic because that pride is to them we can do this but there's a coda there's an appendage to this a little exclamation at the end that says with ruby we can do this with her we can't do and, and it's almost like this failure to admit that we need her not that we just need a hearing deckhand because you see the way in which she has this rhythm with her family. It's not that she works for free necessarily, although that does come up a couple of times about why don't you just get a hearing deckhand? Well, we can't afford that. But I think it's more about this comfort level that she has because she's their daughter, because she's their sister. 
And seeing how that gap, seeing how that absence elevates their disability and sort of diminishes their capability of fishing, I think that it brings them to this understanding of where Frank says, I'll sell the boat. I understand this. And it's really interesting, Aaron, because it's that conversation around the dinner table where he admits that. He says, I'll sell the boat. And she goes, no, you don't have to. I'll just go late. I'll go to school later. And I don't feel like this is a, oh, man, you're giving up on your dream. I really did feel like, yeah, just go in a year. You know, it's okay. Of course, I don't know a lot about the about the school. Could you get an audition after you graduated from high school? I don't know. Maybe you couldn't. But I didn't feel the weight of what she was saying. I felt like that's actually a good idea. And I think that's what you talked about earlier, which is I think if she had stayed, I wouldn't have been upset because of the way that she cared for her family, the way that she saw them as valuable. And knowing that they value what she brought to the table as an individual, knowing that, that they can appreciate her love for singing and that it's okay that she didn't necessarily go to school for that, or at least not right then. You know, Get your feet off the ground work for a couple of years, and then do your thing. Because as you mentioned earlier, we don't know what happened to her. She may have just flunked out of Berkeley. <laughs> yeah, but, that's that's the, the difference is that so many movies like are focused on if she made the choice to stay, that's so obviously clearly the selfish cho- choice of the parent. And the, the, the string of the movie is for the parent to recognize that they're being selfish by wanting to keep their kid and hold their kid back from their own. But that's part of what makes this so unique is in this structure, in this family unit, it's not that. It is so much more than that. And like we've kind of said multiple times, I guess. But yeah, I I love it. That's what makes it really good. And I I also wanted to point out that I think one of the things that makes this so good is the fact that the two leading actors are both actually hearing impaired actors and the the original film they were not i i so i think that's a cool change i don't think it's anybody means necessarily a requirement that's a whole movie debate that people have all the time but i think that it added something to this i could feel a naturalism to it a realism to the everyday situations and i wrote down a whole bunch of these because these were the things that i felt like highlighted the family's relationship at various points these little details made it feel real to me things like the parents talking about their sex life right how awkward but like normal that was and how they're not aware of the noise that they're making when they're having sex that i would never have thought of that but like that is a reality right you're not going to you're going to be making noise but you're not going to know because you don't have that understanding or that sort awareness. of trigger yeah, that yeah, awareness. awareness that's the right word ruby and her brother leo cursing at each other in sign language was hilarious that's towards the beginning of the film that first introduction of them i freaking love that and he's like he calls her like a, a twat waffle or something she's like oh new one you know and the way that they go back and forth like that uh is really cool the fact that the parents love gangster rap and turn it up way too loud because they can feel the bass that makes perfect sense to me uh, the family being noisy. You mentioned the fart that happens. That actually is part of a larger group of little noises that take place in a really impactful scene for me because Ruby's trying to study and she wants quiet and we hear dishes banging around and we hear her brother on his cell phone going beep, beep, boop, boop, probably on Tinder. And then we hear the dad fart and like, there's all these things 
that you, again, take for granted when you are hearing, you would expect these noises not to be made because people would understand and have that awareness, but they don't, they don't even know. And so you have that when Gertie comes in the house uh, over for the first time and she's like, oh, Leo got hot. And she's like, Gertie or whatever. And she's like, what? He can't hear me. She's right. He can't. Like, I wonder how many times that actually happens if for people who I don't, I don't know any hearing impaired people in my life. So I wonder if that's a very common kind of trait that people in their lives probably go to often. And I, I wouldn't be surprised getting ripped off by the fish buyer because they can't hear the negotiations that other people are having. That that's just kind of an obvious one and seems like people would get exploited all the time that have disabilities. Sadly, um, when Leo goes out drinking with the fisherman and he's trying. So I, that's one of the things I love about the montage at the end is when it shows them like being a part of their new co-op and having made friends and him and his father go to the same bar together. And they're actually getting along with, and those people are like trying to make relationship with them. Whereas Leo is trying to be, he wants to be part of this so badly. And so he goes with them and he's just trying and it broke my heart every time when they're just, they're talking as if he can hear them. They know he can't, but they don't care. And so he's just trying to, to fake it. Like he has any idea what's going on. And of course it leads to that fight where the guy can't even understand what he's upset about for the for the most part because he can't communicate and then the whole communicating with Gertie over text message I love that I feel like that is probably a huge like helpful technological innovation for the deaf community honestly like the advent of technology and being able to communicate in that way with people who don't know sign language um, I thought that was really neat and and just a beautiful introductory way and i think it, it mattered more to me because it resulted in a relationship that was actually lasting another great part of this movie honestly being wholesome it wasn't just like a, a hookup that she wanted to be with the hot guy and who's deaf and had to find a way to get with him and that was all it was no these two like legitimately were in a relationship at the end of the movie right like they they really fell for each other and i thought that was nice uh, and then you mentioned you know talking about dinner during the choir i had written that down too as how like you said, like every, that would be, we wouldn't do that. If we're sitting there whispering to each other, it would show that we weren't listening to the music. Well, they're not listening they to the music. <laughs> they, they're not, right. But, but it's okay because they're not, they can't. So yeah, exactly. yeah I, anyway, I that's a whole list. There's probably more, but like those are the nuanced details that for me kind of made this special and didn't feel exploitative exploitative of a disability for entertainment purposes but yeah. felt like we were just stepping into the everyday life of people and experiencing their perspective so let me let me just tack onto that and say that i absolutely agree without it not being exploitative because at the very beginning of the movie there's a little bit of a conversation about the fact that it's either ruby's mom or somebody gets made fun of there's a conversation about them you know, talking like a deaf person. We never hear that. But then we get a couple of moments early on in the film, again, with that hilarious scene where dad's listening to hip hop really loud. And of course, she's embarrassed. But at no point, Aaron, did I ever feel like them being deaf or her reacting to it was any way shaming them. Like, I think 
she never tells her brother or her dad or her mom, you don't know what it's like to be here. You don't know what it's like to be, you know, to know that you're being made fun of. I mean, she's never trying to preach to them. It's just who they are. And this film absolutely brings up the fact that those who have a disability, who don't have a, I would say normal, and I put that in air quotes, who don't communicate in the way that a lot of people do, they don't see that as a disability. They, they see it as different. We have to do things differently. And even just down to some of the cinematography, there's that great shot with uh, Gertie and Leo at the bar and they're texting each other. But I love how they get really close to each other. And it's it, their cell phones actually cross almost like a la 1950s. We're sharing a couple of straws you know, in a soda or something like that. And I know that's not necessarily what was happening, but it, it really created a sense of intimacy between two people who weren't able to communicate with each other in a traditional way, whether all sign or all vocal, they found a common ground. And then of course it plays for, for last that next scene where they're making out in the, uh, in the coat closet or the employee closet. But you're right to see them several scenes later, seeing her at the recital holding his hand and kind of communicating with him that, you know, this is her, she's coming up next and, you know, pointing. There's never, ever a moment where I feel sorry for them being deaf because we are living with them. We are living with a limitation and that's what we should probably call it. Not a disability. I I don't like using the word disability, even though it's probably PC. They're limited in terms of it's an alternative way to communicate. And one of the things I liked about the montage at the very end is that we see, I don't remember his name, her boyfriend that she hated, but then started liking, I forget his name. Is it Miles? Thank you. Thank you. Seeing him learn the language to communicate. And I think that I I don't ever foresee myself learning sign language unless I need to, but it helps me recognize that, for instance, I can talk really fast to someone who may not understand my language. I have a couple of friends of mine that just got married today. He is straight up full on American. She is from South America. And so I have to remember when I'm talking to them and talking to her, I have to speak straight to her and speak a little bit slower for her to understand the things that I'm saying. Because sometimes I'll either speak too fast or I'll use... Americanisms, you know, colloquialisms that she may not understand. And so I have to kind of in my head do a little code switching and say, okay, how do I communicate this idea simply? Same thing with my son. I may have a great big theological idea in my head and he's like, hey, what is hell? Okay, (laughs) let's explain this to an eight year old, like an eight year old would understand that. And so it helps me simplify my thoughts, but also get the truth across. And I think we see that in CODA, that not that it's about us trying to understand the deaf community or what they're saying, but recognizing that they have a language that we don't understand. And reading subtitles should be as normal as reading subtitles in a silent voice. It it should. And I love that that point. And also, one thing about Miles that is really intriguing is how we get a character who genuinely admires and is envious of her family situation despite their disability because 
he has this experience at home that he is not happy with. And oh my gosh, that was, it's a small thing in the movie, but like it really was powerful to me because it reminded me once again, it's like all about perspective and your own experience. You don't know what someone else is going through. And so typically it's always going to be about like, oh, this family is the one, the, the, the spotlights on them because they're the ones that clearly must have the harder life because they're deaf. And so nothing could be normal for them. But in reality over here, it's Miles who's like, man, I want I want your family. I want your life. That was really meaningful to me. Um, and I thought just executed into the storyline in a really cool way where it doesn't take over. It doesn't become this big thing. It's just something that he me he mentions to her and gets her to recognize like, Oh yeah, maybe it's not what it is on the inside that we always see for ourselves. There is this other view of my family that I never could imagine people think and see it that way. And I also love that they don't like it, it, the romance is such a minimized in this, mm -hmm. the way that it actually comes about, I think is also beautiful because listen, the reality is, and I've always noticed this, you know, we, we always see celebrity couples pop up constantly. And how many times is it these people hooked up or got together because they were on tour together or because they were in the same movie and their characters were in a relationship. I will always believe like if you are, acting or you are singing a love song to each other and you are having to get to that emotional state because clearly this movie shows us like in order to bring out your best in a performance and sing at the top of your ability you have to emotionally be able to go there right if you're doing that and constantly singing a love song back and forth and forcing yourself to feel that it naturally is going to create this sort of attraction and feelings for that person that you're singing for like I don't, th I think that's human, and it happens all the time in the music and the and the acting industries, and so for them to kind of fall for each other in that way a little bit, but it doesn't ever become the primary plot point. I just loved how it was integrated in there. It's absolutely, a duet. you yeah. must do it together. Do it together. I absolutely love the English art and the music teacher. I love Bernardo. Stole the show. Yeah. Stole the show. I so good it comes on the scene and i'm like can you just be in every scene because this is amazing and and to his credit let me just say that he kept it professional i'm not gonna say that Thank there was you. A <laughs> that he was all about the success of these individuals and he it was his job and and i love the fact that when she comes in she says look i've got a lot going on he goes you don't think i do too and he shows like i've got a life that doesn't include you and it's important to me. We don't see that a lot. We never see his wife. We never see his kids. We get these hints that he has this other life. And I think that makes it more appropriate. Because in this day and age, if you got this music teacher bringing you over, seeing you, you know, having you sing a Joni Mitchell tune at his house by himself, that can become real sketchy. But again, not necessary, not part of anything, and and kept it wholesome. You You kept this idea of... We're not focused on that. It's not what the that's not what the the movie's about. And I think he became an advocate for her, which I thought was really interesting. Maybe you can enlighten me a little bit why he messed up a little bit in starting the Joni Mitchell song during her audition. I don't know if it was intentional or not. Um, can you, can well, you enlighten can. me a little bit? Yeah. yeah. I mean, 
we should probably talk about the audition scene because this is, I mean, yes. essentially the big thing we haven't talked about. And it's mm-hmm. more or less, I think, our connecting point, even though we're <laughs> not really doing connecting points anymore. But I put on Twitter after watching it the second time for this podcast episode, I was like, look, the last 10 minutes of this movie are my favorite piece of a movie in 2021 so far. And I I cry. And I think the movie, that's a credit to the storytelling and the character development up until that point is that I cry because I'm so invested and I care about these relationships so much. That is not a fault. That is not manipulation. That is freaking storytelling. It's how it's supposed to work. That, that means that they're doing their job and it's effective. Sorry, I just go on a little rant because it frustrates the crap out of me when people are like, no, oh, it's just pulling your emotional triggers. Like it's, it's just forcing you. No, duh. Like, and a horror movie scared you. Is that just manipulating you into fear? No crap it is. That's the point of the movie, right? Like, come on. Like, why does this kind of movie always get criticized for it, but nothing else does? So anyway, emotional moment there. But I love this 10 minutes. Yes. He absolutely 100% does it on purpose. She starts off. Her tone is off. She's not hitting everything perfectly. He flubs it. And it's specifically, you can tell, I think it's pretty clear to me, just the way he's like, oh, my bad, my bad. Like, can we start over? It felt very clear to me, the look he gives her. And he's like, it's a silent way of him saying, listen, it's okay. I'm here. Take a breath. We've got this. Like, she notices her family is up there. Let's do this. Because when he steps in, it's so quick. That whole scene is such a like flurry of like mistakes by her and like an absolute privilege that she is even in there and being given this chance considering she's late and she forgot everything and, and all this stuff, right? Didn't have anybody to play for until he walked in. So it's so fast. And I think he it's his way of like resetting her to a baseline and saying, all right, we've done this before now. Let's let's go. Um, and it's so different to me. Her tone, she has a beautiful singing voice. She's incredible. She was incredible performance in the movie in general. But on top of that, she does the singing. I can't wait to see what she does in the future. So yeah, I thought he did it on purpose. Okay. And, and it makes complete sense. Harkens back to when she gets introduced to the song, or when we get introduced to her singing the song, how she's sort of half-assing it, if we can say that. And he gets right in her face, and he gets her passionate. And then she starts singing with so much passion. I love it. It's absolutely wonderful. And I think he's bringing her back to that moment. And rather than yelling and getting mad, she's just full of life and full of emotion. And that's what I think triggers the whole signing to her family and saying, this is my way of connecting with you. I want you guys to experience what I feel when I sing. And this family sitting in silence. Why? Because they're deaf can't necessarily or won't necessarily get crazy they just enjoy it and i think it's their connecting point aaron i think it's their moment where they're like we get what she's feeling in that moment and let me just say this listeners i told aaron this uh this weekend Joni mitchell's both sides now is probably one of my favorite songs i got first introduced to it at the 2010 vancouver games and it was actually a re-recording of Joni Mitchell back in like 2000. And her voice has 60s, changed significantly. 60s or 70s? Yeah. She, yeah. Yeah. Normally. Um, 
Yeah. Normally, right. And I think it was featured in Love Actually as well, the same the same rendition, where it's more subdued. If you listen to the original song, it's got a little bit more energy. I mean, not too much. It's still got the same melody. But this rendition that she sings, that Joni Mitchell sings like in the last 20 years, this new uh, recording, puts her in a, in a place where you're like, it's it's like she's almost articulating the song's point that she was in two different places singing this song and now she's in a different place and she sounds different she sounds older more mature and it's really a great contrast and i love the song it's an absolutely beautiful song so the fact that ruby is singing this i'm going okay what's the symbolism here and so you know i'm listening to the lyrics and i'm thinking it's a song about growing up it's a song about recognizing that those clouds that you saw castles in are now fading away and they're becoming just clouds. They're not the things that you imagine them to be. And she's in this moment, she's in this place where she sees love from both sides. She sees it from her perspective and and their perspective. And I might be reading into this and I'm fine. I'm fine to read way into this, but this is why I connected so deeply with this because it's the perfect song to articulate how she's feeling. And the fact that we got that little montage at the end, we're seeing the other side, Aaron. We're seeing the choices that were made, the next steps, this new season of life that she's in. And it's beautiful because it's a beautiful song. And it's one of the few times that we get music in most of the conversations, in particular, the one with, with Jackie on the bed, there's no music. I mean, we could have that sentimental score playing in the background and it could elevate the moment. Didn't need it. All these conversations, the one with her dad on the truck when she's singing to him, it's acapella. And you see his response, feeling her 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 vocal cords. cords. Yeah. Yeah. And, and feeling how she feels and watching her emote. It's those things that I think just absolutely make this movie so over the top for me. And it culminates to that song because it really, it does have music behind it, but it's her voice that's driving it. And I don't know that you could have picked a better song to really bring the movie home than, than that one. So well, it's kudos that, for that pick. Yeah. I mean, the song is clearly obviously like intended to mirror the ly- lyrically mirror the story. And the point of the characters, I think I think the song she sings with Miles is very similar. That song is intended to be meaningful. And I I think that's beautiful. Like that's part of what makes people so in love with music. The lyrics matter. They are intended to be something we relate to, be able to help us to express emotions and feelings and go through things. And so I think that it absolutely was meant to be that way. And it, it is, it's beautiful. I mean, I'm in tears that whole time. Like I said, that whole sequence of her signing to them and meeting with, and her dad, the whole thing with her dad, man. It, and it's his only spoken word of the entire film, entire movie. The only spoken word he says is when that finishes, he says, go. That's it. It's the only one. And, and I lost it. I just lost. I mean, maybe it's because my daughter literally starts college tomorrow for her first day. But but I mean, I, you know, I'm that guy now. But I mean, it's not anything quite like this. I'm not sending her off to a new city, but I've had some 
emotion around it when I've, as I've realized, you know, like I, I don't see her anymore. Like I, I went to get some stuff from her the other day for my dog. Cause it, she had bought some dog food and I needed to pick it up. And I realized my goodness, like I see you once in a blue moon and it's, it's hard. Like even that, you know, to just, to say, go, go do the thing you want to do. It's okay. And I don't have to be there every day. I don't have to be a part of your life. It is relatable regardless of that individual situation like you talked about. And it's also a montage. It's a montage, Patrick. I wrote down montage, montage. in all caps because I was like, Patrick loves his montages. It's montage. Uh, it's beautiful. Perfect montage. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and for him, from him saying go vocally to them all giving the I love you sign as she's going away, it's just a perfect way to end this movie. Like it's, it's a perfect coda. <laughs> um, it really is. It really is great, and and I I'm I'm so glad that you loved it. I mean, I really didn't have any doubt. I'm excited about where this filmmaker goes because it's written and it's I guess adapted, should say, written by and directed by the same person. Um, and I'm just I'm in love with it, and I hope that more people will see it. I've been promoting it, been telling everybody I can, like I said, to to get a chance to go see it. Five bucks, you can. It's cheaper than most rentals to get one month of Apple TV Plus and you can see this and so much more. But hopefully it will continue to garner attention. If not awards attention, not for the case of, because it needs awards to validate itself, but just to put it out there in people's eyeballs, you know, and give people the awareness of it so they can check it out. A little piece of trivia before we wrap up, the sign that she gives them back is I love you, but she crosses her finger over her index finger, which translates to I really love you. So just Wow, little... I did how did you know that? Or did you read that on some I IMDB, you know, it's oh, okay. just what I do. Yeah, but still that's, that's pretty cool. cool. That's kind of cool. That's really neat. Yeah. I'm not sure if they did that back to her, but you know, we see that last shot of her and I was like, hey, look, her finger is crossed. What does that mean? I really love you. <laughs> yeah, sign language is easy to mess up as uh, Mr. V found out. That was hilarious. <laughs> And what so a great funny. recovery by our dad. Like, I can't wait to screw you. Too. Like, I can't wait to screw so... you too. <laughs> so and then he says what I think we all say. I'm so glad that you have parents like this. <laughs> it's just great. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, we're going to be taking Labor Day off this weekend. But after that, we will be bringing you our take on the latest MCU entry, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Kales Davis is going to be joining us for that one, and we hope you will too. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group, a link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive and keep feeling film.